The Beacon, celebrating when God uses the unexpected to do the unexplainable. Hey, well, good morning and welcome to The Beacon. My name is Steve Woods. I am thankful to get to be your host and uh, together on the program with me again today, my my faithful co-host, Jeff Blake of Phoenix Christian Preparatory School. Jeff, good morning. Good morning, Steve. Oh, man, Jeff uh, and audience, we have an incredible opportunity today. We have a guest that uh, is in this lane of educational choice and freedom in America and uh, has relocated himself and his family for the purpose of being useful in that mission. And, uh, and I'm just delighted to get to introduce and welcome Corey DeAngelis, who's the director of school choice for Reason Foundation. Corey, thank you so much for being on the program from Washington, D.C. this morning. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Well, you know, we're just really grateful and uh, it's amazing you know, what you're doing, the opportunity that you have to be a voice on behalf of educational freedom and choice for families and educating their students is, is incredible. Um, and it's interesting to, to all of us, I think, as the greatest debate in all the land today is, well, are my kids going to go to school? Are they, are they going to go to school but be at home? Am I going to educate them? Is it going to happen through Zoom meetings? What's, what's going on? And, and so the ear of the country is now you know, poised towards this topic and, uh, and something that you've been working on for some time. And we're excited to get to talk with you about that today. Again, thank you for being on the program. Thank you again. Yeah, I'm really excited. I and mean, this is, you're right, a huge uh, policy debate right now with schools you know, just saying that they're not gonna reopen. I mean, 59% of the largest school districts in the United States most recently uh, from a recent survey have said that they're not providing any in-person instruction when it comes to the public school system. We're seeing a different response from the private schools and we can get into that a little later as to why there might be a difference in incentives across well, the it's, sectors. It's an important and relevant conversation and not just in a global pandemic, but really on the whole as to what the marketplace should be like, what it should allow as it relates to education. Before we dive deep into that, let's get to know you just a little bit. Tell us a bit about your background, uh, your education growing up, where you were in the country, how you ended up in Washington, D.C., and let's just let the listeners get a, a little vibe for, for who you are and, and, uh, and how you got to be where you're at. Yeah, I grew up in San Antonio, Texas, so I, although I live in the swamp, I'm not of the swamp I'm here in D.C. <laughs> just for work. Uh, but yeah, I, I attended uh, government-run schools or what you would know as traditional public schools all throughout my K-12 educational experience. Uh, because my family didn't really have the need, the means to pay for a private school uh, tuition and fees. So that's one of the reasons why is I, I think it's so important to allow uh, families to be able to have these options, because one, I didn't have a lot of these options growing up myself. But then also, I got a little taste of school choice in high school. In my district in San Antonio, Texas, we had something called magnet schools, which are still government-run schools, but you're not residentially assigned to them. And so you can voluntarily select into these schools and, and they'll accept you via lottery. And I saw at that particular school that it was just so much better and much a high quality, quality education than the school that I was residentially assigned to. And I, I, you know, you, I can't imagine the different life trajectory I would have been if I would have went to the, the school that I was residentially assigned to. It looks like there was you know, a lot of uh, uh, you know, gang activities going on at the school. When I'd walk through the hallways of that school, it seemed like there was not as much learning and there's more disorder in the classroom. And the reason I was able to see these two worlds at one time was because 
the magnet school that I attended was actually on the campus, a physical campus of the school that I was supposed to go to. So it was like a, you can see the big difference uh, in the worlds between those two school systems. And so I think everybody should have those types of options, you know, within the public school system, but then it shouldn't stop there. The money should follow the child to wherever they're getting an education. And if that's in the private sector as well, people should have that option as well, because obviously with magnet schools and other public schools, they are prohibited from having a religious affiliation. And that's an obvious benefit that can be accrued to religious families in choosing private schools as well. So I think, you know, there shouldn't be any discrimination on, you know, the type of school that you're allowed to take your education dollars to. So that should be a charter, magnet, private. But then, yeah, after uh, high school, I did my bachelor's and master's in economics at the University of Texas at San Antonio. And I studied under John Merrifield, who does, who has done a lot of uh, private school choice research. He studied a private school choice voucher program in San Antonio that's no longer in operation and studied the effects of that. He's also affiliated with EdChoice, which is formerly known as the Friedman Foundation for Educational Choice, named after Milton and Rose Friedman. Mm -hmm. And as, a, as, as studying economics, I just kind of saw a lot of the problems with the education system in the United States that result from this residential assignment leads to a lot of monopoly power. Just imagine if you were residentially assigned to your neighborhood grocery store, regardless of the quality of the products that they served you, and regardless of whether you uh, actually chose to get your groceries from that residentially assigned grocery store, imagine if they got to keep your money regardless of whether you actually shopped there. And imagine if you had to pay out of pocket if you wanted to choose something else and essentially pay twice. So a lot of this monopoly power kind of in the public school system got me really interested in reforming the, the education system through school choice mechanisms by allowing the dollars to follow the child to wherever they get an education, public, private, home, or otherwise. And then uh, after that, I did my PhD at the University of Arkansas under two big school choice researchers, Dr. Patrick Wolf and Dr. Jay Green, uh, where one of my first studies at that program found that access to a private school voucher program in Milwaukee one of the longest standing voucher programs in the United States, we were able to look at individual student level data and we found reductions, large reductions in criminal activity. And part of that could be the moral education that is accessed through the private school sector uh, since private schools are more likely to be religious. That's not the only theory as to why this could be. It could also just be competitive pressures at civic, you know, uh, in, in public schools versus private schools providing a good civic education and moral education to their children. But we found that, and we also found reductions in paternity suits, which are often uh, created through out of wedlock births from that mm. program. So uh, I've seen a lot of positive effects in the data with these programs. And then also just the moral argument for school choice has really um, gotten me to, to, to research the, the, the effects of these programs, but then also to bust the myths that come from the other side that uh, when special interests try to prevent families from being able to take their children's education dollars uh, to whatever school works best for them. So that's kind of the quick, quick background of how I got interested in this and, and, and kind of where I'm coming from. I, I really came big, big from the research side and I still do the academic research, have uh, almost 30 peer reviewed publications on the topic of school choice in just a few years, but now I'm moving a lot towards you know, the advocacy side and just making the theoretical arguments as to why school choice is a good idea. And I don't, I really don't think there are any good arguments to prevent families from choosing the school environment that works best for their own children. Yeah, the, the residential segmentation 
is just something that you, I, I just can't imagine you would find it in, in about any other area. And am I, am I wrong to think that there's a, there's a sense of irony where, you know, this government watchdog that doesn't allow monopolies in any other industry sort of protects the one that they have as it relates to education. Yeah, I mean, you, you heard this during the Democratic presidential debates. They would rail against the pharmaceutical monopolies, and I'd say, okay, yeah, uh, monopolies are bad, but now apply that to the public school system, too, and you never hear them apply the same logic across sectors. For some reason, it's okay if it's a, a public monopoly or a government monopoly, but not a private monopoly. I would argue, as Milton Friedman argued historically, that private monopolies are not, not something that you want either, but they're better than a public monopoly because they're more likely to be replaced. You don't ha you're not forced to pay for a private monopoly and private right. monopolies have historically been more likely to be replaced than public monopolies because public monopolies, they get your money regardless of whether you even consume the service. So um, I would argue that if you, if you see problems with private monopolies, you should also extend that logic to the public sector as well. Um, and look, residential assignment leads to a lot of inequities in the public school system. A lot of people think that the public school system is some type of great equalizer, but it's the opposite. It's, mm. it's, we have um, zip code determining children's futures. And if you can afford to live in a very fancy neighborhood that's residentially assigned to the best government-run school, you're just more likely to have a better life trajectory. And you can essentially buy your way into the better schools through uh, a choice by mortgage, essentially. I know Arizona has some type of open enrollment uh, processes out there, but it's still partially uh, indicated by your zip code because you get a higher chance of getting into a school if you live in that particular neighborhood. So even though the other side will say, oh, we already do have public school choice, it's not actually completely the case because zip code still does determine to a, to a, a sense uh, that the, the likelihood of you getting into a better school. Um, so look, school choice in that scenario uh, can lead to more, more equity in the school system in that rich people already have school choice and middle class income people are, 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 are more likely to have access to better public schools and they're just more likely to be able to access private schools. We should allow lower income individuals to access those choices for their families too by allowing the education dollars to follow the child to wherever they're getting an education. That, that would lead to more equity in the school system. And I think that's something that a lot of people uh, ignore uh, when it comes to the school choice debate. And look, and I also want to point out really quickly is there's a lot of programs that the other side uh, that, that does not like K through 12 school choice actually supports when it comes to other industries like food stamps. The money mm -hmm. follows the individual family and the family can pick Walmart or Whole Foods or Trader Joe's. We don't residentially assign low-income families to government grocery stores and say, if you want to use your food stamps, you have to go to that particular store. No, we rightfully so give the money to people instead of institutions. And this is a whole other conversation as to why, as, as to whether we should, you know, have funding for, for the food system or not. But if you're going to have it, it should go to people, not institutions. Same thing with the school system. With Pell Grants at the higher education level, the the money goes to the individual student. You can pick a public or private provider. Same thing with pre-K programs. Uh, pre-K programs, the money goes to families. You can pick a public or private provider of pre-K as well. And so a lot of the people that support choice when it comes to higher education and pre-kindergarten education, for some reason, don't support it when it comes to the between years of K through 12. And that's logically inconsistent to me. And the only way that I can square it is that in K through 12 system, there's a entrenched monopoly special interest of keeping the system how it is because they get your money in the current system regardless of whether you use their services or not whereas in higher education and and pre-k 
the norm is that people can already choose where to send their dollars. So that's the difference in incentives there. Well, and, and if the logic were to hold true, then wouldn't that choice at higher education and at preschool led to the demise, the demise and the, you know, the failure of those systems? I mean, it hasn't. It hasn't. Yeah. I mean, the, the higher education system in the United States is world renowned and everybody wants to come here for higher education. And we also do have more choice when it comes to higher education in the United States. Yep. And look, um, public schools get better in response to competition, right? If you can take your money elsewhere, one, they actually end up with more money for people left behind because they don't lose 100% of the funding. They only lose a percentage of it. Um, and But then also when the government school system sees that they're going to lose some money from choice, yep. they start to rethink how they restructure their schools and they actually improve. And there's a meta analysis published in 2019 that has found uh, overwhelmingly that school choice competition improves. Hey, we're welcoming... Outcomes. Corey DeAngelis, thanks, Corey, for the info. Come on back to our second segment. We'll talk more with Corey about educational freedom. The Beacon is presented by Phoenix Christian, a school celebrating excellence in education since 1949. Learn more at phoenixchristian.org. Hey, well, welcome back to The Beacon today. If you just happen to be tuning in, we are thrilled to be welcoming on the program Corey DeAngelis. Corey uh, is a uh, director of the organization I buried in my notes. Help me out, Corey. Educational Freedom Institute, and I'm also director of school choice at the Reason Foundation. Thank you, man. Hey, so we um, are talking, we were talking in the last segment, we were hitting some of the statistics as it relates to uh, this whole conversation of educational freedom and and choice and uh, man you're just on the forefront of that think tank and it's it's critical it's important you have a lot of information that i think other people either don't have or don't want to look at because they've made a decision they're uninterested in change and uh and this is just a case where it's it's got to happen there's got to be some conversation there's got to be some rational discussion about what makes the most sense for the lives of these young people whose trajectory is affected by the decisions that are either made or in worst cases, not made. Yeah, and what makes the most sense is obviously funding the student rather than the institution, just like we do with just about any taxpayer funded initiative, whether that comes to you know, food stamps, Pell Grants, pre-K programs, Medicaid, Section 8 housing. It goes to individuals. If we're gonna have the taxpayer funding at all, it should go to individual families to be able to choose where to best educate their children. This is why you know school choice is so important that the education dollars are meant for educating children. Okay, well then give it to the children and their families and allow them to choose the school that works best for them. It shouldn't belong to an institution that's not serving the needs of those children. And look, uh, the, the family should also be able to choose the public school system if they want. If the public school system is doing such a great job, they won't lose any students whatsoever when families are giving given the choice to take their money elsewhere. But the problem is, a lot of people in this that do not like school choice will try to make two arguments at, at the same time, which are not logically consistent to make at the same time. They'll say, on the one hand, the public school system is so great that we do not need school choice, that you know this is just something that's not necessary. Then at the same time, they'll say, oh, if we have school choice, that will demolish the public education system. Well, which one is it? If your public schools are doing such a great job, no one will leave and take their money to other schools. And, but I think the reality is they know that the private sector, uh, just as it does in any other industry, does a better job in general than the government-run sector. And so I think that's why um, 
these arguments are made. And they, I think they kind of are conceding that they believe that families will choose something else when they're given the freedom to choose something else. So it's a kind of a concession that they know that they're not providing an adequate uh, educational service to, the to their students. But then also I wanna point out, uh, look, there's a lot of myths in the school choice debate. I have a co-edited volume that's already available on Amazon. It's co-edited with Cato Institute's Neil McCluskey. It's called School Choice Myths, Setting the uh, Record Straight on Education Freedom. And we tackle with other authors all across the United States, 12 of the biggest myths in the school choice debate. And they're, they're just often repeated over and over and over again. We knock them down hopefully once and for all in this book in one place. And we use a lot of data to support our claims in every single chapter uh, because look, there's theories on either side of the debate, and I, I don't think the theories against school choice are any good, but it's, it's very helpful to provide actual data to support your theories as well. And we do that in every single chapter. And we don't cherry pick, we provide all the existing studies on each of these questions in order to show people this is what the evidence says on this particular topic. And we also show the most rigorous studies. So in the previous segment, I was talking about one of these myths essentially that people will say, oh, well, if you fund the students directly and allow them to leave, then the children who are quote unquote left behind in the public school system will be worse off in some one way or the, or the other. And they'll say that you're defunding the public schools and to which I will respond one, if you're doing a good job, no one will leave your school. But then two, uh, you actually end up with more money per pupil in the public school system because all those schools in the public sector are, are funded based on enrollment counts. They aren't completely funded based on enrollment counts. From what I've seen in the United States, the average state is about 20 to 40% of the funding uh, or 60 to 80% of the funding on the higher end is based on enrollment count. So what does that mean? 20 to 40% of the funding stays in the public school system for children who are no longer there. Just imagine if uh, I took my, you know, if I had my food stamp program for my family and I moved from Walmart to Trader Joe's, imagine if Walmart had to keep 20 to 40% of my food stamps each week regardless of whether they provided me with any services. Walmart would be happy about that. I don't think that's how it should be set up, but regardless, that is how it is set up in the public school system. Similarly, the K through 12 public schools should be more than happy that they get to keep 20 to 40% of the revenues for children who are no longer there. So you're not defunding the public schools by doing this. If anything, they're financially benefiting on a per pupil basis. But then two, three, the money doesn't belong to the school system at all. It belongs to the children it should be based on their decisions. But then four, this argument doesn't have any merit whatsoever because if you look at, there's about 27, 28 studies on this topic that look at the effects of school choice competition on the children who remain in the public school system. 26 of the 28 rigorous studies on this topic find statistically significant positive effects of school choice competition on the children who don't even use school choice. That means you benefit from school choice even if you don't even use the programs because you benefit from those competitive pressures because the government run schools notice that they're losing some money and they have to up, up their game a little bit. And what they do is they actually get better for those children who remain in the public school system. The two remaining studies out of the 28 find no statistically significant differences overall. So there's literally no evidence when it comes to private school choice programs that overall, uh, you know, allowing people to choose harms children in the public school. There's just no evidence for that. And there's a 2019 meta-analysis published in Educational Policy, a peer-reviewed uh, academic journal, a high-quality academic journal. They also compiled all of these stats together and found a statistically significant positive effect of school choice competition on the children who remain in the public school system. So the evidence is on the side of freedom here, but it's also the theories uh, on the side of freedom as well. It's, it does not 
let's just let's just imagine the evidence was the opposite that for some reason we saw the test scores get a little lower in the public schools because they had a negative competitive response to competition and they didn't do a good job i would argue that's not a legitimate argument to prevent low-income families from choosing schools that work for their individual children your right to choose your children's education that works best for them should not hinge on the competitive response of the government school system. Uh, regardless, the evidence is positive, but even if it was negative, you should not be able to trap low-income families in a school system that's not working for them based on the response of the government schools. That's just kind of like saying, you know, you could think of a situation where people say, oh, you know, uh, Walmart customers could be worse off if you take your food stamps to Trader Joe's. Even if that were the case, that would not be a legitimate argument to infringe on my liberty to choose Trader Joe's for my family if because of the competitive, negative competitive response in this scenario, this hypothetical uh, of, of Walmart. That would be a totally, absolutely ridiculous argument to make that my right to choose, and, and, and the reality is my right to choose my children's education does not hinge on the competitive response of a school system. It doesn't hinge on the, the, the competitive response of the school system for advantaged families. Why should it apply to low-income families only? So I think that's just a, uh, ridiculous argument to make, and it it just fails uh, when you look at the evidence and, and basic logic. Well, it totally makes sense, and and Corey, you're you're not only a really informed guy and a really intelligent guy, but you're a really passionate guy, and we enjoy hearing the perspective that you've gained and the research that you've done, and it's beneficial to all that have a chance to listen. When we come back in this next segment. We're going to connect all of that information with an educator, and we'll listen to Jeff and his perspective on what's happening in the classroom at a private school as a result of some of the limited opportunities that exist in the state of Arizona. So thank you for tuning in to 960 The Patriot, for listening to The Beacon. We're grateful to Corey for being here. Come on back to this next segment. The Beacon is made possible by Phoenix Christian and listeners like you. Hey, welcome back to The Beacon. Thanks for joining us today. I'm your host, Steve Woods, together uh, with Corey DeAngelis, um, our guest for the day, and also Jeff Blake of Phoenix Christian Preparatory School, our sponsor. And guys, I want to have the two of you interact a little bit because we're talking about all the reasons why uh, this just makes sense from, from the research that Corey has done, has shared. It, school choice is just, it seems like a no-brainer, and yet it's an uphill climb uh, in so many states across the country and, and on the federal level. And Jeff, you're living out um, at Phoenix Christian uh, in an environment that simply, I would think, probably just couldn't exist or couldn't exist in the fashion that it does today. Talk a little bit about that for the benefit of the listeners and to give Corey a perspective on just how important school choice is for the families you serve. You bet. It's an honor. And Corey, I want to thank you for um, being a policy thinker and a communicator and getting it out uh, in the open to, uh, to inform those who are making decisions and trickling down and shaping the lives of students that I get to see every single day. And even just the last few days here at schools, we're preparing for opening on August 20th. There is a steady trickle of families walking into this office, new families, families that would never have the opportunity to be in a private, in a private Christian school like Phoenix Christian are here 
because of proponents uh, for school choice like yourself. And I want to emphasize what Steve is saying. Although our school boasts, uh, this year in October, we'll celebrate our 71st birthday as a school, we are not who we were in 1949. And now we are proud to boast and celebrate that we are a school of no majority. We serve infants all the way through 12th grade. Uh, well over half of our graduating class from last year are first generation college attending students. And in those 55 students who graduated in a small environment, those students earned nearly $3.6 million in scholarship to afford them an opportunity that would never be given to them. And because of work like you're doing and, and other advocates for school choice, lives are changed every day. And I wanna just open up with that and give you a chance to respond to, to those kind of numbers. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And I think that's what I'm seeing in my research when it comes to private school choice programs and even charter schools, that if you look at the meta analyses on these, they, they typically lead to a much higher educational attainment, and that is through college enrollment and graduation from college. There's also six studies linking uh, charter schools or private school choice programs to crime, and all six are peer-reviewed, finding large reductions in criminal activity after being exposed to uh, these kinds of alternatives. And I think it has a lot to do with the better access to education that these children are getting. Uh, and, and I totally agree that uh, expanding education choice programs like the ones in Arizona would be an equalizer. It would allow more children from disadvantaged backgrounds and from all backgrounds really to get a better education and, and to drastically change their life trajectory as we're seeing in the data. So let me, ask you, let me go ahead, Steve. I was just going to say, Jeff, give, it, give us an idea as a percentage, how many of the students that attend Phoenix Christian are there with some sort of assistance through a school choice uh, scholarship? Thank you. I really appreciate that. Somewhere, to be honest with you, somewhere in the upper 80%, close to 90% of our students are on some form of financial assistance through uh, tuition tax credit programs or what we call here in the state of Arizona, the Empowerment Scholarship. Uh, many of our, our special needs students are funded through the Empowerment Scholarship, which allows parents to transition funding from the public sector here. In turn, that enables us to hire individual aides uh, to walk with those students in, in several cases, one-on-one -on -one aides. That enables us to serve populations such as um, autistic students who, have, who, would, who are mainstreamed in our classrooms, who walk, who walk with a one-on-one -on -one aide helping them uh, thrive. It's a, it's a unique environment. And again, it's the blessing of a smaller school environment that allows for individualized education, personalized education. It's amazing. Yeah, I will say that matches the national data that have been done on this and other programs looking at the most rigorous studies. Uh, I haven't seen any negative effects on educational attainment and the, most of the, these studies are positive on educational attainment. And look, it doesn't surprise me all that much because families are voluntarily selecting your school system and other private schools around the country because they see that kind of benefit, right? They, they want best for their own children. They have the best information about what their children need. And they're seeing that your school system is providing that. And so, um, you know, I think parents in general have the best you know, uh, uh, you know, best in mind for what their children needs, and they have the best incentive to get it right. They have much better incentive to get it right than a bureaucrat in, in Washington, hundreds of hundreds of miles away. So Corey and Jeff, we're talking about one of the most critical decisions that can be made on behalf of uh, the next generation of people in our societies. Kids are not able to make these directional decisions at an early age for themselves, and we can make a better life for them. And, and it's important to have these conversations and to make good decisions along the way. So uh, listeners, as you've tuned in, you've picked a great program to listen to today. 
thrilled to have Corey DeAngelis, Jeff Blake with me on the program. And we come back for our fourth and final segment. Uh, we're going to kind of try and put this uh, in a place where you can grab it, get a hold of it, and spread the word. So thanks for tuning into The Beacon. Join us in a fourth and final segment coming up next. Phoenix Christian believes strongly in its rich history and bright future. Now equipping students from pre-K through 12th grade. Learn how you can help continue its legacy of Christ-centered education at phoenixchristian.org forward slash support. You're listening to The Beacon, presented by Phoenix Christian. All right, well, hey, welcome back to The Beacon, aired uh, in Phoenix on 960 The Patriot available through all of the common podcasts opportunities that are afforded you. Again, today we have in the program, Corey DeAngelis, who is a director of school choice for Reason Foundation. And uh, in addition to that, Corey is in high demand because of his expertise in this area of uh, school choice and educational freedom. Uh, you may have caught him or might again soon on uh, one of the, the news networks. You might see him uh, on an interview that he's about to do with uh, with Rand Paul when he finishes with us today. In addition to that, he has two weekly podcasts. Corey, tell us and the listeners where we can find uh, more information from you and listen to, to other statistics and information as it relates to this topic and others. Yeah, if you're not following me on Twitter already, I do share a lot of stuff on Twitter, including my weekly podcast. So it's just my last name, then my first name, at DeAngelis Corey. But if you wanna look up my other podcast, there's one called the Educational Freedom Institute Podcast. And so you can find that on pretty much any podcast platform. And we have a YouTube channel. And then also I do a weekly podcast with, uh, in conjunction with Bob Bowden from uh, Choice Media called Random Assignment. Random Assignment. So you can check out that on a lot of different um, podcast uh, outlets well, as well. And, and I actually caught earlier today before we were on the air together, the, uh, the Random Assignments, one of those with, with Bob and his super entertaining, really informative. And you guys just do a great job with that. It's really, really done well. And I would encourage the listeners to check that out because if they're interested in what we're talking about today, they're going to be really interested in what you guys cover. So, so Jeff, again, having Corey here and talking in that last segment about the real life impact, uh, you know, just, just tell the listeners again, uh, if you would, or ask Corey from, from your perspective, uh, you know, what you think might be important for listeners to hear. Well, yeah, again, you know, I, I worked a little late last night, sat out on the on the stadium and watched the boys practice their football um, when, the, when the sun went down a little cooler out there. I'm looking at an army of, of young men. Um, as we affirmed earlier in the program, Phoenix Christian boasts to be a school of no majority and a beautiful tapestry of students out there um, under the tutelage of some coaches that care very much about them. Lives are being changed. I think, Corey, that, I think a question that's been driving in my heart this entire conversation is, uh, many, uh, many families, higher income, are aware of opportunities for school choice. Lower income families are not. I think what I struggle with every day is how to get the word out. When I watch a lower income family walk through this office, their eyes are wide open. They're excited for the opportunity. They can see new horizons for their student. My challenge is how do we get the word out to lower income families about this? And what are the thinkers saying? What is your input? for? Yeah, that? I mean, one, one obvious way to do it that I've been trying to do is social media, because everybody from all different types of uh, income, uh, you know, backgrounds has access to you know, social media. So 
I do a lot of Twitter stuff and a lot of my posts blow up and I think um, families are learning about it more that way. And then also um, I think families are doing it spontaneously almost in reaction to the school system not providing what they need, particularly this year, a lot of schools are either protesting really hard to not reopen or they've already announced that they're not going to reopen. I think Kathy Hoffman in the public school system in Arizona already announced that uh, even though they are, uh, had already said August 17th was going to be the start date, they're pushing that back further as well. I think Chandler Unified also just recently said they're not opening until October, uh, the second term. So I think families are already kind of seeking this out, but then also, yeah, I think social media is a good tool. And then also these, these podcasts that, that we do and others do and, and radio stations. Um, but look, I mean, uh, maybe uh, another way to do it is to have the school districts themselves provide this information to the families. The problem is a, an, an issue of incentives there, right? They, they probably don't want to advertise to their customers about their competition. And so I think that's why you might get pushback if you try to push for having the school districts themselves provide this information to families. You'd think if they were competent in their product, they'd be more than happy to share these options with their students. And I think they sh we should put the uh, put that on them to and challenge the school districts to provide this information too. Um, so that's that's my quick take on that. But look, you know. Um, you pointed out, uh, we pointed out a lot of the benefits of getting access to a private school in Arizona and elsewhere. And a lot of the times the conversations around educational attainment and college enrollment, but I also wanna point out there's other non-academic benefits to school choice too. And families over and over again, when you ask them why they choose a private school for their children is one, the moral education through religion, which they cannot get in the public school system as well. Uh, but then also, uh, the safety of their students. They, they, they want to get away from, you know, these uh, uh, unsafe situations in the government school system. You see a lot of reports of bullying happening in the school system, whereas the private school sector has been a, a, a better at being able to adapt and be, be more nimble. And then also, yeah, with the schools just not even reopening in, in Arizona, um, that's just another benefit that shows that the private sector can adapt faster to, to things that, that are happening on the ground. So, but yeah, I mean, the main point is that there are non-academic benefits to choice too, that so many of us just take for granted growing up. You know, if you, if you grew up in a, uh, a high quality public school, or if you grew up in a public school that, that was not dangerous, you don't even think about all of these right. other non-academic benefits. That's good. Well, Corey, again, we're so grateful to have had you on the program today. And before we turn you loose to go on to other commitments that you have, can you give uh, maybe a a final appeal or some perspective that would allow somebody listening today who's like, man, I've just heard things I hadn't thought of before and I'm motivated on behalf of my family or my grandkids or whomever uh, to make a difference and to champion this cause. What action can they take? How can we as a society make a difference in this scenario? Well, one is to publicly support expanding uh, the school choice programs you already have in, in play in Arizona. I think they're mostly limited to students with special needs, but every student is unique and has a special need of their own. So that should be kind of open to everyone in your state. And that's one way to do it. But then also you can go through the courts as well. ACLJ has already gotten tons of legal inquiries from families in Arizona who are demanding their money back from the government because the Arizona constitution requires a free public education. In some cases in Mesa, Gilbert and Chan, uh, Cave Creek Unified School District, they're actually charging families out of pocket. So they, they can't really say that's a free public education for these daycare services in August. 
when otherwise it would be free any other year. So I think they're taking legal action already with Gilbert Public Schools, for example. And then also another way is, is yeah, um, the families are demanding their money back if they don't, if their schools don't adequately reopen for their children. Families need to get back to work, and this is a perfect time to expand school choice because families are realizing that the school system shouldn't get the money for not educating my children adequately. That should follow my child to wherever they can get a good education, including a private school. Well, you know, as we talked about off the air, our program, Corey, has this tagline of how, you know, when God uses the unexpected to do the unexplainable, nobody expected a global pandemic, but here we are. And one of the things that we're seeing both on the federal level and the local state level in Arizona is the winds of change as it relates to the ESA type programs where those dollars that have been very tightly restricted but can follow certain students. Hey, there's a call right now to say, hey, open that up, even if it's temporary, open it up until things really are at a, a position where that product is still available and the Walmart isn't closed and I can go get the food that I'm geographically limited to get. When that happens, let's talk about it again. But until then, let me have the dollars so that I can take care of my family and my kids. Yeah. If, if a Walmart doesn't reopen, you can take your money elsewhere. If a school doesn't reopen, yeah. you should similarly be able to take your money elsewhere. And that That's the same with, yeah. with Pell Grants. If, if your community college doesn't reopen, you can take your Pell Grant elsewhere. You should be able to do the same thing with K-12 education. And I think people are understanding that. Well, you're, you're an intelligent, articulate, and well-informed voice in this subject matter, and we're really grateful to have had you on the program. Thank you for investing the time with us today. We wish you well, and we uh, look forward to the next time our paths cross. Thank you, Corey, right. for being on the program. Thank you guys so much. I look forward to staying in touch and uh, perhaps coming on again with you guys in the, in the future. Don't tease us. We'd love to have you back. Well, have a good one. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Corey. And Jeff, as we continue to kind of wrap up this last segment, it's been really, really informational. Uh, you know, here's a guy who's on the forefront of this important topic. And uh, isn't it encouraging to know from your desk, from your position, as you struggle every day, to collect enough resources to, to take care of uh, the opportunities that are before you, uh, that there's somebody like Corey and others that are out there to champion this cause, to be a voice in places uh, with decision makers as he's off the air with us now. He's jumping on a call to interview you know, Rand Paul, who's in the process of introducing some new legislation on this subject. And uh, man, isn't it encouraging? Yeah, it is. You know, and this is the this is the time of year normally when we're we're ramping up and in a normal environment. Actually, as we record today, it would have been the ori original day for our students to have returned to school. Uh, but we pushed it back a few days in honor of um, what Governor Ducey has encouraged us to do. But as I've worked with the faculty who are back now for professional development, I see an army of foot soldiers ready to impact lives. And just on behalf of the entire organization from the board to the teachers, the faculty and staff, just to express our gratitude for thinkers like Corey, what they're doing, affecting policy, the data to back it up. Um, it, is, it is a data-driven element that we're grateful that there's people like that that have the time, the resources, the energy, the gifts to pursue it, to get it out in front of our policymakers and to affirm what we see happening, but they can statistically even better than we can prove it. Although we can prove it with some very strong test scores that we're proud to celebrate. Well, that's, that's for sure. And you know, uh, boy, what a season, like, uh, like none other, as you go into this school year, so much debate, so much uh, uncertainty. And yet here's what we know, right? We're going back to class, we're going back to school. And, and I think Phoenix Christian has found that balance of saying, hey, here's what we're about, here's what we're committed to, um, and uh, we are not gonna be foolish, we're gonna be prudent, but we're also not gonna be paranoid. 
That's exactly right. I, and I really appreciate that. And again, I want to affirm that as we made our decisions and as we calibrated, we carefully interviewed and, and surveyed our families and then sat down in a room for an hour to two hours a day and navigated through the data to make our decision. So here's, here's what we're decided, we've decided to do is that we're going to begin on August 20th again to honor um, what Governor Ducey has encouraged us to do. We're going to start about 745 in the morning and run till about a little after 11 for session A take about a 45 minute to an hour break and then begin session two. Parents have the opportunity to choose either a morning session or an afternoon session. What we're really encouraged by is that those class sizes are gonna be in each class all the way, kindergarten through 12th grade are gonna be about 10 students in size. A number of our families have chosen an option we've provided called home-based learning. And we're gonna drive that uh, through Microsoft Teams with, with videos, a, a live stream of class, assignments that are handed out digitally to the in-class students and the home-based student, we have given our families those options. In addition, one of the things we discovered in our survey is a number of our families have either a single parent home or both parents need to work and need to go back to work to support the family. So we have also provided an environment in which students can come and stay the full day with us. Again, in smaller environments, we're doing temperature checks and health screenings and keeping a very careful eye on our students, social distancing, all of it but it is a service that we're providing to our families um, based on the data that they've given us. And we are blessed and honored to do that in an environment where we set Jesus Christ loose in an educational environment and see lives changed. And honestly, I'm particularly excited for the individualized attention we're gonna be able to give our students at the beginning of the year to pick up some lost ground as we, as we all made the transition last March to, to distance learning. Well, it's encouraging and and jeff you know um directly to you to anyone who might be listening into this episode at this time and and uh, is within the hearing who is on the front lines of making those adjustments uh, it's a it's a big undertaking to bring students onto a campus in a um in a very normal traditional setting and, uh, and accommodate their needs and their energy and equip them uh, for a bright future um, it's it's altogether something different and and additional to take on that same task added with the, the variety of adjustments that you've just outlined. So please feel the appreciation, not just of those of us who have kids and grandkids there, but um, of the community at large. And uh, you know, those parents that are able to go back to work because of the, the, uh, the bold effort that you and your staff are making, uh, their lives are impacted as well. So for other educators that are listening that are going back to work and back to school and taking care of these kiddos, we want to encourage you. We want to thank you for the listeners that tune into the Beacon. Thank you for listening to the program. Uh, we're honored that you listen. We hope you'll catch other episodes via the delivery system of your podcast. Um, have a great day and celebrate with us the ways in which God uses the unexpected to do the unexplainable for his glory and for the good of all of us who follow and love him. Have a great day in Christ Jesus.